If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what's going to get you excited. What good news. Aren't you glad you took time to gather this morning here as a church and online in your homes? You know, I just felt this morning I'm so tired of this kind of heaviness that is just always creeping at our doors. And uh, Friday was a day of news conference at 3. So-and-so is going to declare something at 3.30. Well, I have good news this morning. Every Sunday at 9 and 11, if you're interested in a good news conference, come to Calvary Baptist Church or watch online because we are going to give you Jesus, and Jesus is the good news. And I'm just so thankful. I said to the worship team between, I said, thank you personally. Thank you personally for using your gifts and your abilities to lead me to the throne of God this morning to, with a grateful heart to be renewed and to have my perspective brought back on what is the only thing we can count of, and that's Jesus. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? So let's ask God to bless us as we read his word this morning. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us to be here today. We acknowledge it's a gift. I think, Lord, for myself, there's been many times in the past where I've just taken gathering for granted. I will not do that ever again. Thank you for allowing us to be here this morning and gathering in our homes this morning as families to have our minds and our perspective put back on the right track, and that's on Jesus Christ, our living hope. So Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you'd bless it. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would change us so that we will live the lives that you have redeemed us for. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if we were playing a game of uh, family feud this morning, and up on the board I told you were the top seven answers to the following question. Name the, sur- the events surrounding the birth of Christ. So I'm going to give you a minute. I'm confident that most of us would have no problem answering all seven of them. Right? First there was the angel Gabriel who visited Mary. Then the angel visited Joseph. There was a census or Herod. Trip to Bethlehem. There was a manger, there were shepherds, there was the star, and there was the wise man. No problem, right? How many of you got all seven? Right? No problem. These are all so familiar to us because we have read about them and we've sung about these incredible details surrounding the birth of Christ ever since we were a kid. But here's the danger. Sometimes when things become so familiar to us, we can lose our appreciation for them. Right? Isn't that true? Over the last three years, my wife and I have had the privilege of taking over the, the family job of making maple syrup up at our farm. And, and uh, you know it's so interesting. Maple syrup is such an incredible thing. It takes a lot of work. It tastes really good. And uh, yet I've become familiar with how precious maple syrup is until I go to a grocery store and see what you have to pay for or 100% Canadian maple syrup. It's good to be reminded Because we become so familiar with things, we lose our appreciation for them. And that is why it is critical. Each year as we head towards Christmas, that we take time to revisit the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to cause us to marvel all over again at the love and grace of God towards us. Listen, he who alone is holy loved us so much that in spite of our ungodliness, in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of our rebelliousness against him, still chose to come and be 
with us. That's good news. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, scriptures record the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. We sang about this morning. Rejoice, rejoice, because it means God is with us. Christ's birth, together with his death and his resurrection, is the most important event in history and is at the heart of the Bible. And if we search the scriptures from Genesis right through to Revelation, not just the familiar passages we turn to at this time of the year, we will discover that Jesus is and has always been the central reality of God's plan for the ages. So our collective prayer as a pastoral team, as we launch this new series today, Jesus, the reason for the season, where we will track him from Genesis all the way to his incarnation, is that your eyes, is that our eyes will be opened in wonder. We sing that song, open my eyes in wonder, that our eyes will be opened in wonder and our hearts will be filled each week with renewed gratitude, with renewed thankfulness, and with renewed hope because of the good news The angel declared to the shepherds on the night of Christ's birth when the angel announced, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, where we will take a look at Christmas announced in Eden. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat, from, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked." So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 3, I see three critical realities in this passage that are good for us to regularly remind ourselves on. And I call them our mess, His grace, our hope. So let's take a look first at the reality of our mess in verses 1 through 7. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture to all of us, recording how mankind fell out of fellowship with God. But this week, there was something that hit me as I was studying it. Have you ever stopped to think about just how many firsts occurred that historical day in Eden? All of us, I'm sure, have been in situations where we've had to deal with all that goes along with new things, with firsts, whether it be starting a new job. Maybe some of you have uh, taken advantage of the real estate market and sold your home and you're moving to a new neighborhood. Or even possibly some of you are attending a new church like Calvary for the first time. We all know the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings that go around and along with first things. The fact is, however, whatever we have felt or experienced, we were not the first to go through that. But not so with our first parents that day in Eden. Think about it. For the first time, one of the creatures that they had been given dominion over to rule over speaks. Just take that in for a second. We've read that so many times. For the first time, one of the creatures that they are to rule over speaks. It's crazy. Can you imagine this morning, Eric, my friend here, I know him and Gail got this little dog called Pebbles. The only time I visited them, it was so frustrating because I had to walk around the house like this to make sure I didn't stand on Pebbles. But Eric, could you imagine if Pebbles this morning, after you took her for a walk, when you unhooked the leash and opened the door, said, thanks a lot, Eric, I really enjoyed that. We would have been shocked. But look how crafty the enemy of our souls is. Eve wasn't even shocked that one of the creatures had spoken. For the first time, Satan, a fallen angel, a supernatural spirit, possesses the body of the serpent in its pre-fall form and appears and interacts with mankind. We see Eve, for the first time, come under spiritual attack and for the first time is tempted, think about that, is tempted to doubt God's goodness. For the first time, the thought was planted in her mind, perhaps our creator God is holding back on us. Maybe he doesn't really have our best interests at heart since he has forbidden us to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She was not only for the first time tempted to doubt God's goodness, for the first time she was tempted to doubt God's word and its authority. Look at the second half of verse one. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you remember as a kid playing that game, I think it's called uh, telephone, where you'd be in a circle and I would give a message to this person, then they whispered around and then you all joke around and see how far the message was not on target from where it started. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. This is the message that God gave Adam. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
Now let's go to Eve and how she responds to the serpent's question, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis 3 verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, okay? But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. No, God said you must not eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you must not touch it. We didn't read that in God's instructions to Adam. Or you will die. No, God said you will certainly die. You see how quickly deception can change the message. And so for the first time, she was tempted to doubt God's word and doubt its authority. For the first time, in verse 4, we see Eve experienced being lied to and deceived. Look what he said. You will not certainly die. This is why in John 44, Jesus said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 3. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus goes on to explain that the thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So Eve begins to listen to Satan's lies and starts to believe that what he is telling her sounds true, causing her to begin to doubt God. And in her deception, we read this morning, she rebelled for the first time against her creator by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as I was studying this week, I was just reminded, Eve did not overtly rebel against God. But by seduction and deception, she was made to believe her actions were the right thing to do. And the New Testament confirms this. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, 1 Timothy 2, 14, and Revelations 12, 9, that Eve was deceived. And as Dr. James Boyce says, listen closely, temptation is most effective when it is dangled, when it dangles something before us that can easily be interpreted as good. To be wise and to be like God? Of course, who wouldn't want that? And so be careful, because when temptation is dangled before us, sometimes it can be easily interpreted as good. And Satan knows this. And that is why in Scripture it tells us that he masquerades as an angel of light. Then for the first time we see Adam, rebel against God. But listen closely. Unlike Eve, he rebels without being deceived. And it was through his willful disobedience that the human race, that you and I are part of, were plunged into the sinful mess that we find ourselves in. Yes, the responsibility for our sinful mess rests on Adam. Since he chose to disobey God apart from being deceived. And you can read about that. I encourage you this afternoon to read through Romans chapter 5. That chapter affirms that death, both physical and spiritual, came through Adam. There you'll find that sin entered the world through one man, referring to Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. The reality is, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 says, in Adam, all die. So tragically, Adam's choice not to glorify God, but instead to disobey his command resulted in both physical death 
and spiritual death for all humanity. All humanity is seen as guilty before holy God and in slavery to sin. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 through 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one good. No, there is no one who does good, not even one. And then go down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the reality of our mess apart from God. And as a result of, the, of our mess, we see in verse 7, for the first time that through their corruption, they come to know good and evil. And their innocence that they enjoyed in chapter 2, verse 25, which says they were naked and they felt no shame, was suddenly replaced. Something they had never felt before came upon them. Guilt and shame. And for the first time, their view with this new knowledge, what did it give them? Shock. It shocked them because all of a sudden they looked at each other and realized they were naked and they felt shame. And then for the first time we see them trying to figure out how do I cover up this new feeling of shame because of our nakedness. And in that frantic moment, I love what verse 8 says, the Lord God shows up. The Lord God shows up. Now, I don't presume any of you when, when you were in school were nothing but uh, responsible, obedient, well-behaved students. I have no doubt about that. But I have a recollection of when I was in school, that when the teacher would leave the classroom to say, I need to go to the office to get some photocopying done, please just make sure you keep working on your own, work on your homework, don't disturb anyone, and I'll be back shortly. What that meant was, as soon as she's out of view, it's time to goof around. Spitballs, whatever you can do to begin to create chaos within the classroom. And I don't know, I see Phil Powers laughing, so he must be able to relate to this. But I remember being that guy. And I remember at our British school where I grew up overseas, they were long cement corridors. So when she said she's leaving to go to the office, we knew we had time. But you know what happens, right? You get up from your desk, you take that spitball, or you take that paper, and you start whipping it at people. And all of a sudden, while you're right in the motion of throwing it, she decided to come back sooner than you expected. And do you remember the feeling of being caught in the act? There was nothing you could do. There was nothing you could do. While Adam and Eve in their guilt and shame, they did something that they had never done before. They tried to hide from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just imagine that. Think about that. Try and hide from God who knows everything and sees everything. Crazy, but how many times you and I try to hide from him thinking we can get away with our sin? And they hid for good reason, because they had done what God had told them not to do. And based on what the Lord God had warned them, they surely must have expected to die. But have you ever thought about that? Did they even know what that really meant? They had never seen or experienced death. What a mess. Today, Satan still uses the same tactics to entice people to disobey God. He has elevated autonomy and independence to new heights. And in rejecting dependence on God, people choose a far more costly dependence, themselves and their resources. And during this pandemic, we have seen how unreliable 
both of those really are. The trouble with freedom apart from God is that it makes us slaves to the powers of evil. And the promises of the right to choose without God's morality have not and will not ever deliver the desired results. That is why, brothers and sisters, it is good for us to gather. It's good for us to remind ourselves of our mess apart from God. Oh, not to dwell there, but to restore our awareness of sin to its proper place because we cannot understand or appreciate God's grace without an awareness of our mess. An awareness of our fallenness brings a renewed appreciation of God's grace and compassion. And even though Adam and Eve hid because they were afraid, they were about to learn that it is always a good thing when you find yourself in a mess and God shows up. That is a beautiful thing. Why? Because the psalmist tells us in 145 verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And we see these attributes of God traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when he did not discard fallen humanity in our mess. Perhaps today you're here and you realize your life is in a mess. Or you're watching online and you realize the things that you have put in your dependence on, the things that you have been chasing after for hope and security have failed. Well, I have good news for you this morning. God loves you. How do I know God loves you? Because he's put breath in your lungs to be here this morning, to hear the second reality of his grace. And so I encourage you, if your life is in a mess, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ living in disobedience to the will and the commands of how you know Jesus wants you to live, or whether you're an unbeliever, I have good news for both of you this morning. God is a gracious God. And so let's look at our second reality that we see from this passage, our mess Let's look at the reality of his grace in verses 9 to 21. His grace. What is grace? The undeserved favor he showed towards our first parents, giving them what they did not deserve. And I want us to notice how gracious God was in four ways. How he came to them, how he called them, how he talked to them, and how he dealt with them. So let's quickly look through those. Look at how gracious God was in how he came to them in verse 8. He did not come to them in fury, like their actions indicated they thought he might because they had done the one thing he told them not to do. Instead, the scriptures say in verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day like he had done before with them. What a gracious God. Look at how gracious God was and how he called them. Even though God knew full well where they were and the mess that they had created through their disobedience, he makes the first move. Isn't that awesome? God makes the first move and calls out to Adam, where are you? Graciously giving Adam the opportunity to explain why they were hiding. Look at how gracious God was to them and how he talked to them in verses 10 through 13 when he has a conversation with them. Here again, he graciously continues to give them the opportunity to come clean with him. But note, in spite of their guilt and in spite of their shame, there is no confession. Adam does not take ownership and come clean for his personal disobedience. Instead, what does he do? What does it say in verse 12? The man said, the woman who you put here with me. Adam transfers the blame to God. Look at verse 13. Likewise, Eve quickly passes the blame onto the serpent. 
And yes, although she was legitimately deceived by Satan, that did not excuse her from her distrust and disobedience to God. And so here, for the first time in the history of mankind, we see the common reluctance, which we can all relate to, of sinful people not wanting to admit their wrongdoing. But Scripture makes it clear that confession and repentance, turning from your sin, is essential to being freed from our mess by God's grace. Jesus made a big deal of repentance when he was addressing the Pharisees in Luke chapter 15. Listen to what he says. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, referring, Peter referring to God's delay in holding the ungodly accountable for their sinfulness says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Aren't you thankful that our creator God is patient with us? What a blessing. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Brothers and sisters, when sinners, those who are lost outside of a relationship with God, or believers who are followers of Jesus Christ, when sinners refuse to repent, we will suffer judgment. But when they do repent, when we do come to realize our sinfulness by God's grace, and we confess our sin, listen to what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, He, patient God, He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. That is good news. So follow Jesus' words in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. And then lastly, look how he dealt with them. How gracious he was. After listening to them pass the blame, and rather than confess their disobedience to him, one would think they would have been at the forefront, right in the crosshairs of his judgment. But look at verse 14. Look where he chooses to focus his attention. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, rather than demand an accounting and pronounce judgment upon our first parents, he first curses the physical serpent. This does not mean that he put a hex on the serpent or changed its character or nature by some magical or mystical means. No. What it means here when it says, cursed are you, it means the opposite of blessing. It means to remove God's protection and favor. And because of Adam's disobedience, Romans chapter 8 verse 20 tells us that all creation was now cursed. It no longer entirely fulfilled God's original purpose. And here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, we see that the serpent is cursed above all livestock and all wild animals. And it, as a result, will crawl on its belly and eat dust all the days of its existence. Look where he goes next in verse 15. We see God turn and pronounce his judgment on the spiritual serpent, the lying seducer, Satan himself, who had possessed the physical creature, so he starts with cursing the physical creature, serpent. Then he goes in verse 15 to pronouncing his judgment on Satan. And then thirdly, in verse 17, look where he goes. God curses the ground. He never curses our first parents. Nor did they die immediately. In fact, Adam, 
went on to live 930 years. You see, these initial responses by God are the first appearances of his grace in the scriptures. His underserved favor towards mankind, as one author wrote, expressing God's love and compassion is just as essential to who God is as expressing his justice and holiness. And John Newton could not have been more accurate when he penned the famous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God showed grace to our first parents in spite of the condemnation they deserved. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, because God is holy and because God is just, punishment had to be delivered. But remember, mankind was not cursed. Instead, he laid out for Adam and Eve, and we read it this morning, the consequences of their disobedience that would affect every human being from them on. In verses 16 to 19, he first of all says to the woman, he declared going forward there would be severe pain in childbearing, and women would struggle with their husbands for supremacy. Why? Because sin turned the harmonious system of God-ordained roles into distasteful struggles of self-will. And as a result, every marriage moving forward would need God's help in getting along. Look what he says to the man. Because of your decision to disobey, God declared that he would earn his living going forward with difficulty. In the end, he would return to dust from which he came. In other words, he would die as God had warned them in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Because he turned his back on the voice of God to follow his wife. The woman sinned because she acted independently of her husband. And the man sinned because he abandoned his God-given leadership and responsibility to protect and lead his wife. And instead, he followed the wishes of his wife. In both cases... God's intended roles were reversed, and by sin, they both became mortal. And although they did not die the moment they ate, that was simply because of God's mercy. God withheld what they deserved. They were changed immediately, however, and we noted that. All of a sudden, they recognized their nakedness and felt shame. And they became liable, as you and I have become liable, to all the sufferings and miseries of life including physical death and the pains of hell forever. And in verse 23 and 24, we see that he banished them from the garden, cut them off from access to the tree of life, making their physical death inevitable. So where is our hope? Where is the good news of Christmas in Eden? It's right there in verse 15. Our hope is in verse 15. Let's read it together there. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right there, in the middle of God declaring his just punishment on our mess. Don't forget, this is our mess. He makes a promise that sin and Satan will not have the final word. And Satan's agenda to deceive, to accuse, to steal, to kill, and destroy will ultimately be defeated. You see, Satan's agenda was and always is to do two things. Number one, he wanted to seduce Adam and Eve away from the worship of God. 
causing them to disobey him, and in so doing, bring God's judgment upon themselves as had come upon himself. And then secondly, he wanted to win the allegiance and worship of our first parents for himself. We must not forget, Satan is the fallen angel who tried to replace God as the chief being in the universe and wanted to gather the worship of the creatures for himself rather than God. But we know from Luke chapter 10, verse 18, that his attempt proved unsuccessful and he was cast out of heaven. But here we are in Genesis chapter 3 and we see him appear on earth. To attempt to do among the new race of human beings what he failed to do prior. But God, in verse 15, in his judgment of Satan, speaks directly to him and tells him that he will use conflict. Did you notice that? God is going to use conflict to actually reverse the desired goals of Satan's deceptive agenda and ultimately defeat him forever for being the instrument of Adam and Eve's fall. And in his judgment of Satan, God gives three gifts that offer us hope. Did you notice that? I had never really noticed this. And then reading through some of Dr. Boyce's commentary this week was such a blessing because Christmas is about surprises, isn't it? Well, you're going to hear three Christmas gifts that maybe you've never noticed before in this verse. The first gift of hope that God offers in his judgment statement to Satan is he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. What does enmity mean? We don't use that word very often today. It just means ill will on one side or on both or mutual antagonism. And at first glance, you read that and you figure, you go, ah, it's hard to see how conflict can be a good thing. But in the context of this hope-filled verse, enmity is good by the fact that it is God who creates it. Did you notice that? He says, I will put mutual antagonism between you and the woman. Satan got Adam and Eve to sin, his first agenda. But he was unsuccessful in his second agenda, which is to gain their allegiance, their loyalty. Why? Because of this gift of mutual antagonism. What was about to change was not Satan's hatred for mankind, for he had hated them since the time that they were created. The new thing was Eve's and Adam's and all their offsprings, including you and I, are hatred towards Satan. Not perfectly, to be sure, because we are sinners and they were sinners themselves, but enough antagonism towards Satan that they and we will not be drawn automatically into Satan's camp and follow him wholeheartedly. You see, although the human race is a mess and terribly corrupt, and although all its ideas of truth and falsehood, right and wrong, are corrupted, human beings nevertheless retain some idea of right and wrong, and this is a gift from God. God has so ordered things that sin brings misery to people. I think we can all relate to that. We've all been there and felt the effects of sin, of our mess. And yes, for a while, as we heard Diana testify this morning, yes, for a while, it felt good. But we all know at the end of that feeling good is the misery of sin. And so this enmity, this antagonism between mankind and Satan is a gift from God because it prevents us from lying down in sin and just loving it completely. 
God has created this mutual antagonism which limits the hold sin has on us and makes it possible for us to hear God's voice and to respond to his grace in the midst of our mess. What a beautiful gift. The gift of enmity. Mutual antagonism between our enemy and us towards him. The second gift, he says, is I'll bring enmity between your offspring and hers. So who's God talking about here? God is declaring here that he will create conflict, mutual antagonism between the ungodly descendants of the woman who doubt, who do not submit to God and continue to be influenced in their life by Satan and the godly descendants of the woman who believe in God and are influenced by him. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Rick helped us to understand there's only two kinds of people, ungodly and godly. And here we see it is God who is going to initiate conflict and mutual antagonism between these two groups of people. And the hatred of the ungodly towards Christ's followers, here's why it's a gift. It pushes us to the, the righteous to a greater dependence on God. Ever felt persecution by an ungodly person for being a Christ follower? That is a gift from God because it will push us towards dependency on God. Rather than relying on ourselves, rather than relying on our resources, the conflict, the antagonism we face from those who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal savior is a gift that God has created so that we will run back to the dependency on him. You see, our hatred of Satan and the world's hatred of us are two great Christmas gifts. In fact, they were the first two ever given. But finally, neither of these would be effective or offer us any long-lasting hope if it was not for the third gift that is predicted in this hope-filled verse. It is the chief reason for the verse. For what it promises is a deliverer from God who would be born of the woman. Look at the end of verse 15. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There it is. There it is. This is Christmas announced in Eden. The first messianic prophecy predicting the birth of Christ. Our deliverer. Our hope. We sang about it this morning. Our living hope. Here we see the first reference to the plan of God to save fallen sinners. The first announcement of the Christian gospel declaring God's commitment to his creation. That even though it's in a mess, he will not abandon it to destruction, but will pursue it in love. Right from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see God's plan to save us from our mess was in place. Hallelujah. That is good, good news. And that's what we got to hold on to. His promise is clear. A descendant of the woman, the scripture says, who we know through progressive revelation is Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, his heel will be struck, indicating this deliverer will suffer. However, this announcement in Genesis chapter 3, this first Christmas announcement in Eden, reveals the child will emerge victorious by crushing the head of the evil one. We know as we go through to the New Testament how the bruising of our Lord Jesus Christ took place at the cross with all its agony. And there it appeared Satan had done far more than strike the heel of the promised deliverer mentioned in Eden. As Jesus hung lifeless 
on the cross. But it was only a bruising. It was only a bruising, not a defeat as the Christmas announcement predicted in Eden. Because on the third day, God raised Jesus from the tomb triumphantly and through his suffering on the cross, bearing the punishment for our mess, forgiveness for sin was made available. And through the triumphant resurrection, death was defeated. That is why we sing our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Satan failed to understand how much God loved the world. That a Savior would be sent by God to bear sin's punishment and that his own power would be broken in the process. But Scripture reveals that through Jesus' victorious resurrection, he crushed the head of Satan, permanently declaring victory over sin and death, fulfilling the promise that was made in the Garden of Eden. Brothers and sisters, in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of all the uncertainty, our hope has to be founded and grounded on this Christmas announcement made in Eden of a deliverer later announced by the angel to the shepherds on the night Christ was born. Although angels, a census, Bethlehem, a manger, shepherds, a star, and wise men are introduced in the New Testament. Christmas is, always has been, and always will be about the deliverer. The deliverer from our mess, graciously promised thousands of years ago in Eden. Adam sinned and plunged humanity into a mess, causing all, including us, to perish in disobedience but praise God for the good news of John 3.16. When God declares, so love the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And in Galatians 4 verses 4 to 5, it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, just like it was predicted in that first Christmas announcement in Eden, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Our mess, his grace, Jesus, our hope. This is the good news of Christmas announced in Eden. My question to all of us today is, how will you receive this good news? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, who by God's grace have come to understand that apart from God, my life is a mess. And I will one day face the wrath of God. Thank him for that grace. Thank him for the gift of faith that he gave you to believe in Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And there is no excuses. And I'm preaching this so hard to myself. There's no excuses why we shouldn't be the most hopeful, the most joyous, uh, the people who are celebrating the most, who are not uncertain, but are hope-filled because we know our hope is in Jesus. And not just at the Christmas season, but all year round. There was this great chasm, we sang about it, that has now been taken care of because of our hope, Jesus Christ. So be, let us be people who celebrate and are joyful and have peace 
and let us be people who share this good news with others who have no hope. And all of us are interacting with people today who are full of fear, feel like they're in a complete mess without any hope. Give them Jesus. He is our hope. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to follow the commands of Jesus. Repent, turn from your sins, and believe the good news. Believe the good news that it was announced back in Genesis chapter three. Repent and believe the good news. And so I'd encourage you, anyone in this building here, anyone watching online, if your life is a mess and you know you are separate from God, please come and talk to one of us after the service. We would love to pray with you and introduce you to the deliverer, Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you know you're living in disobedience, please do not leave this building or do not leave where you're seated at home this morning without getting on your knees. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just. He will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Our mess, his grace, Jesus our hope, this is the good news announcement of Christmas in Eden. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. Being here this morning is a gift of grace from you to allow us to gather to worship you and to hear your word. Thank you. Thank you that you are patient with us and that you do not desire anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. And so God, I just pray that you will do your work in the hearts of people, whether they are believers or unbelievers, who need to confess sin, who need to repent and move forward in a way that brings honor and glory to you. We love you. And I pray that we will be a people who will be full of joy, who will be full of celebration, who will be full of gratitude, joy, and hope in the midst of this pandemic because our hope is not built on ourselves. Our hope is not built on our resources. Our hope is built on Jesus Christ and his blood and righteousness. So we love you and we commit ourselves to you. Help us to now go and be beacons of that good news throughout our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. In Jesus' name I pray all these things, amen.